From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. Lawmakers are moving toward a ban on citizen police review boards. When they leave in the morning, they don't know if they're going to return at night. Uh, it does not make sense to me that we have people second-guessing those decisions. Also this week, we'll talk with an expert on the impacts of unrestricted social media access on kids and younger teens. Children should not be given unfettered and unfiltered access to it. We'll also check out the whys and wherefores of a push by lawmakers to impose term limits on the state's local elected officials, and we'll learn what's being done to ensure the safety of newborn babies whose mothers can't take care of them. I'm Tom Flanagan. Online and on air, this is Capitol Report and the end of week wrap up of top stories from Tallahassee. Funding for Capital Report is provided by the following. Florida State University, a preeminent institution. FSU specialty license plates support scholarships for deserving students who enrich and contribute to our state and nation. More on FSU specialty plates is at fsu.edu slash mytag. HR Florida State Council, affiliate of the Society of Human Resource Management advocating for the workplace on behalf of 16,000 human resource professionals and 6,300 Florida employers. HR Florida State Council. More at hrflorida.org. And from a grant from the law firm of Searcy, Denny, Scarola, Barnhart, and Shipley, supporting public radio and taking time to care, on the web at searcylaw.com. Proposed legislation would do away with citizens' police review boards. There are 21 such boards across Florida. Gina Jordan reports the bill's sponsor calls the boards divisive and unnecessary. Officers have a very tough job. Um, when they leave in the morning, they don't know if they're going to return at night. Uh, it does not make sense to me that we have people second-guessing those decisions, especially if they are already being investigated by attorney, uh, internal affairs or by the state's attorney's office. Spring Hill Republican Senator Blaze Angolia told the Senate Criminal Justice Committee his bill would create uniformity when it comes to processing complaints against law enforcement. Supporters of the ban say these boards serve to try officers in the court of public opinion. Lisa Henning, representing the Florida State Fraternal Order of Police, noted there are already procedures in place to investigate alleged wrongdoing. The majority of law enforcement is body cammed at this point in time, and these officers have the potential to be investigated not by one agency, but by six on a regular basis. This becomes very redundant. Citizens review boards generally don't have any power from a legal standpoint. And N.R. Hines with the ACLU of Florida says they pose no threat to law-abiding officers. For example, here in Leon County, the Civilian Review Board can only review closed cases. But there is more transparency into police activity, which in turn builds trust between the community and law enforcement. With regard to the Tallahassee Review Board, let me tell you what the other story is. Barney Bishop is with the political advocacy group Florida Smart Justice Alliance. He spoke in favor of the ban. That board was stacked with some people that were anti-police, community activists. They're defund the police people. One person that actually got finally got removed from the, from the police review board here in Tallahassee had a F the cops cup that she brought to every one of the meetings. This is not, they're not fair. They don't run by court standards. 
His comments brought audience member Gwendolyn McDaniel to the podium to defend the work of board members. What I heard, and I don't, I hope this is not what you meant, that a regular person cannot follow a logical set of information and come up with a unbiased opinion. McDaniel said she was on a Tallahassee board 20 years ago, a different entity from the police review board that was created in 2020. At that time, she says members were trained on police regulations and charged with being impartial. I don't know what the boards have evolved to since that time, but that's what we did. And we also helped police officers get raises because of helping with policies and procedures that were not uniform. At the start of the session, House Speaker Paul Renner said banning Citizens Police Review Boards is one of his priorities this year. One of the arguments by supporters of the bill is that many board members don't have law enforcement backgrounds. But West Palm Beach Democratic Senator Bobby Powell said that's no reason to ban them. I believe that if there's a problem with citizen review boards, there should be a set of criteria that we use to indicate who sits on those boards, who are what we would call non-biased, or if there's a certain, certain portion of people who are appointed to make sure those boards are balanced. Before the committee voted to approve his bill, Ingolia called the boards divisive. He argued it makes no sense to have citizens reviewing police matters after an official investigation has been closed. I do not think that they are serving the public well other than to second guess, um, again, in a court of public opinion, creating a public perception, the the results of an IA investigation or the results of a criminal investigation by the state's attorney's office. Researchers at the Florida State University Leroy Collins Institute looked at data in the Uniform Crime Report for all major Florida cities from 2000 through 2017. The study found that cities that had civilian oversight agencies experienced about a 15 percent reduction in the rate of black people being arrested compared to cities without such a board. Law enforcement complaints are handled through internal department investigations. Some cases may be turned over to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement or prosecutors. I'm Gina Jordan. Social media may be harming your child's mental health. That's one of the reasons behind a bill that passed through the full Florida House. It limits social media access for kids. Adrian Andrews had a conversation with Tatiana Jordan. She teaches parents about Internet safety for the online monitoring company Bark Technology. She says her company tracks instances of bullying on social media. Over 2023, we processed over 5.6 billion activities on children's devices and accounts, text, email, YouTube, you know, countless social media platforms. And the rate at which children experienced issues like bullying um, and and worse were higher than anyone might think. Whether it's, uh, you know, children as young as six and seven and eight years old, uh, either being a bully or being bullied um, to, you know, older teens still being horrible to each other uh, online. And that translates into mental health issues. 
is social media sort of is it all bad i mean is there any uh No, you know what what's what's some of the good I, I'm so glad you asked that because again, I, you know, I, I, I create a lot of content to educate about the harms and the dangers and the risks, because I feel like not, I feel like I know both parents and children need to be empowered about the pros and cons of tech because tech is a tool. Social media can be used for good, uh, whether you're a creator or you're looking to connect with like-minded peers uh, in a positive way and support each other. Um, it's a great educational opportunity to stumble across new ideas and, and new themes, um, but it does have downsides. And so children should not be given unfettered and unfiltered access to it, particularly at a young age, uh, if their parents have not yet spent time on those same platforms examining, you know, the, the pros and cons and the pitfalls and having those candid, informed conversations with their children about, hey, here's what you might encounter here. And some of those conversations, right? So obviously that that dialect, that language, you know, it's a little bit different. You have to Right. be able to first understand it. And and obviously how technology evolves um, just day to day. I mean, what does that conversation looks like? Like, what does that sounds like? It's actually a pretty pivotal time because... A lot of their friends and peers um, are experiencing and encountering content, themes, and people um, that even if the children themselves don't have access to it, they're hearing about it, right? You know, a lot of children are so scared that if they do come to their parents with something, that the parent will immediately punish them, take away their screen time, take away their form of entertainment. take away their way to connect with other people and consume content. And no kid wants that. Kids will just sit on things and not share. So reiterating that you're a safe place, you'll navigate it together. And that doesn't mean be an overly permissive parent. You don't have to, you know, agree or condone with, you don't have to agree with or condone bad behavior or, or mistakes. Good kids make bad choices. But if you can remain calm and address the toughest issues with your children uh, much earlier than you might think and more frequently than you might think, you'll be better suited for this new landscape that we're all living in. That was Adrian Andrews speaking with Bark Technologies, Tatiana Jordan. As the death toll continues to rise in the latest war between Israel and Hamas, a federal judge heard arguments today in a challenge to Florida officials' efforts to disband student-backed pro-Palestinian groups at two universities. Chief U.S. District Judge Mark Walker spent more than two hours grilling lawyers representing the group Students for Justice in Palestine at the University of Florida and Students for Justice in Palestine at the University of South Florida. They allege that Governor Ron DeSantis and state university leaders are violating their First Amendment rights. The students filed lawsuits after University System Chancellor Ray Rodriguez in October issued a memo to university presidents ordering the deactivation of student groups that are chapters of the National Students for Justice in Palestine. Rodriguez alleged that actions of the national group violated a state anti-terrorism law. The lawsuits allege Rodriguez ordered deactivation of the groups in violation of the First Amendment, an allegation the state disputes. ACLU attorney Brian House represents the students. They have this cloud hanging over them as a result of the deactivation order. And so as a result of that, students might be afraid to join the group. The group is unable to host events in the same way as it would if it didn't have the stigma hanging over it. 
The order and the lawsuit came as the war between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas has spurred fierce debates on college campuses across the country. Florida leaders have taken numerous steps to show support for Israel since Hamas launched an attack October 7th that started the war. Coming up on Capitol Report, Florida lawmakers are subject to term limits, and many of them support the same thing for local elected officials. But not all of those folks are fans of the idea. We do have term limits, they're called elections. An inconclusive environmental study ordered by Florida lawmakers leads at least one advocacy group to suspect there may have been something going on behind the scenes. It was, in our interpretation, kind of intentionally evasive and and claiming overall we need more study we need to look at this further and community and government organizations are joining forces to care for newborns whose mothers can't instead of placing a baby with an adoption agency and them knowing who they are they want that baby to have a life but they cannot be part of that child's life Support for Capital Report is provided by a grant from the law firm of Searcy, Denny, Scarola, Barnhart, and Shipley, supporting public radio and taking time to care, on the web at searcylaw.com. Bills that would impose term limits on county commissioners are moving in the Florida legislature. As Margie Menzel reports, backers say the proposal would bring fresh blood into office, while opponents say voters would lose representatives who know their jobs. The legislature has an appetite for term limits. During the 2023 legislative session, lawmakers imposed eight-year term limits on school board members, down from previous 12-year limits. Now Republican State Senator Blazingolia of Spring Hill and Republican State Representative Michelle Salzman of Pensacola are carrying bills that would reduce the terms of county commissioners. Salzman's bill started with eight-year term limits and was amended to 12. Engolia's would impose eight-year limits, which he says is consistent with most other elected officials. We have it for our cabinet. We have it for the governor. Um, we have it for ourselves in the Senate and in the, uh, in the House. We have a term limits now for school boards at eight years. Um, and we constantly call for term limits for uh, other governments, specifically Congress. The thought behind all these initiatives is the same, Angolia says. When people have been in government too long... They stop listening to the needs of the people. So term limits um, is a way to get, uh, for the lack of a better term, fresh blood into the system, fresh ideas, new way to tackle um, age-old public problems. Um, And it's a way to keep our uh, constitutional republic um, alive with ideas, fresh ideas. The bill drew opposition from county officials. Here's Commissioner John Meeks of Levy County. Certainly the people at home that I represent do not believe in term limits on local officials. They believe in term limits on Congress. Congress constantly polls at less than a 50% approval rating, whereas local government polls at above a 75% approval rating. We do have term limits. They're called elections. Eleven counties that operate under charters already have eight- or 12-year term limits for commissioners, but most, including all rural counties, do not. 
Representatives of the Florida Association of Counties argued that voters in each county should decide whether they want term limits. Leon County Commissioner David O'Keefe says he doesn't think those limits make sense for democracy. Citizens, if they choose to have representatives that do a good job, they should have the option to continue to have them do that job. He thinks the public agrees. And so if they get one in office, they should not be limited to two terms and then they have to try and find a new one. Um, It's hard enough to find a diamond in the rough public servant. And I think that citizens, I trust them to decide each election, out or in. But for Bob White, chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus, the proposal is one of the most important this session. Because we have over 140 people that have traveled to Tallahassee for the next two days, along with some many friends from Defend Florida as well. And this is on our legislative agenda. We encourage you to support this bill, pass it through to its next committee stop. Leon County Commissioner Bill Proctor was first elected in 1996. He says he's never run without capable opposition. And I think that um, when you have that, you're pushing a commissioner to be their best, to keep serving hard and well, because you make it almost competitive to know that if they don't do good, somebody's coming for them. And I don't want nobody to come for me. Proctor also questions the motives of the lawmakers pushing for term limits. He says in Florida, county commissioners make much more than state legislators. They want to term limit me so that they can come and run for my seat. But they they won't come and run against me because they'll get whipped. And I believe in my ability to whip anybody. Uh, And I believe most commissioners, in particular incumbents, believe in themselves. And more often than not, data shows that incumbents typically uh, win re-election. So it's just easier to dump them out, make them go out, than to come down there and challenge them out. They can't win. Salzman's bill mandating 12-year term limits has passed two committees and faces one more. Ingolia's mandating eight-year term limits has passed one committee and faces two more. I'm Margie Menzel. Florida lawmakers raised eyebrows last year when they ordered researchers to determine whether local ordinances that ban the use of fertilizers part of the year are effective. Environmental advocates say the bans protect local waterways from nutrients that feed algae blooms. But there's inconclusive evidence to support that, according to a report from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, known as IFAS. Now advocates worry legislators may move to prohibit municipalities from creating fertilizer ordinances. WUSF's Jessica Massaros talked about it with Haley Bush of the advocacy group 1000 Friends of Florida. Can you please give us some background on this report that UF released on fertilizer bans? Like, how did this come about? So in the final weeks, I'd say the last two weeks of the 2023 session, in the appropriations bill language, that's the state budget, we saw a line item in the budget. This was alarming to us for a couple of reasons. It did not receive an individual committee hearing where legislators could debate and discuss and ask questions about this policy change. And it was more than just a a budget line item for a study. It was policy change, right, when you enact this preemption. And what were the results of the study? I think everyone knew that this wasn't going to be, you know, scientists going out collecting water quality data on (laughs) urban stormwater runoff. Um, So this was a literature review, meaning that UF IFAS 
looked at different previously published peer-reviewed articles. I will note most, if not all, of those articles were University of Florida IFAS research-funded reports. And so those studies were assessing different stormwater ordinances and the impacts on water quality, on turf grass, and the findings in that report did not indicate that fertilizer ordinances negatively impacted the health of turf grass, nor did the study come back and say fertilizer ordinances do not prevent water quality from decreasing in these areas, right? So it was, in our interpretation, kind of intentionally evasive and claiming overall, we need more study. We need to look at this further. Why is it important to note that the previous studies that was looked at to create this report, that it came out of mostly UF IFAS? Why is that important to note? You'd like to see perhaps a more robust and diverse group of articles, right? University of Florida IFAS gets quite a bit of funding from our state legislature. And so while the appropriations request hasn't come out that I'm aware of, we believe there will be an appropriations request for more money to conduct this fertilizer ordinance research. And so that's worth noting that this is, you know, a research institute, a state university system that relies upon funding and support and approval from our state legislature. What are the implications of this report? Like, how could it affect policy that then trickles down to people's lawns and then their surrounding water bodies? I think a big intention here by our legislature is to cast doubt on what has been decades of research that has shown the effectiveness of fertilizer ordinances that are tailored to local governments and, and local you know, regions, right, and the water bodies in that region. So already, just by introducing the study and requiring the study and requiring a moratorium, it's casting doubt on decades of research. Um, it leaves room for legislators to cast doubt and kind of cherry pick different points. Oh, well, you know, some of your articles, some of your research shows that a summer ban is more effective in the summer rainy months. But we've also heard and seen that, no, actually a winter ban or, you know, something focusing on the winter months is actually more effective. It's also a preemption or home rule issue as well. Local leaders and local policymakers and the scientists who are tasked with protecting their springs or their rivers of their region they know best for their local hydrology, right? They know the way the land and water flows, the stormwater runoff paths. And so the preemptive nature of this saying that, well, whatever we decide at the state level is going to work for all of the 67 counties. That's also really problematic and kind of takes away one more tool that local governments have at managing their water quality issues. That was Jessica Mazaros speaking with Haley Bush of the advocacy group 1000 Friends of Florida. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, Florida allows the legal surrender of a newborn and the anonymous end of parental rights in those cases. Since the state enacted its safe haven law in the year 2000, a mother may keep her name off the birth certificate at the hospital. A surrender may happen at hospitals, fire, and EMS stations up to seven days after birth. Still, as WLRN's Veronica Zaragovia reports, some babies never make it anywhere safely. 
Despite all the ways to surrender a baby, South Florida learned about a tragedy on January 8th outside of an apartment complex. A newborn baby found inside a dumpster, the chilling discovery. Six, a dead baby found in a dumpster in Hollywood. Newly released 911 calls reveal the moment a baby was discovered. The Hollywood Police Department shared a recording of the 911 call with reporters. Tell me exactly what happened. My crew arrived to the site to start the day, and I guess they realized when they were going to throw debris into the dumpster that they they see the uh, child inside. Officers continue to investigate this death. Monica Kelsey is the founder of a nonprofit called Safe Haven Baby Boxes. I know that a baby is dead, a baby is in a dumpster, and this child has no chance. Safe Haven Baby Boxes is based in Indiana and installs the device at fire stations and hospitals across the U.S. A person opens the door, leaves a baby in a clear bassinet, as she demonstrates in this video. Shut the door and walk away. Then an alarm system notifies staff inside. When Kelsey was a baby, she herself was abandoned. Ocala has one of her boxes and also Newberry, which is near Gainesville. South Florida doesn't have any. Kelsey says she would prefer that parents put the baby in the arms of first responders or medical staff. But if they won't do that, you don't want to have an infant in a dumpster like in Hollywood, Florida. Some Florida lawmakers have tried to pass bills authorizing baby boxes, but the bills have died in past legislative sessions. Still, the boxes are not illegal. Across the state's 67 counties, a parent can turn to a safe haven for newborns. This nonprofit partners with approved locations where a parent may give up a baby anonymously. They have nobody to turn to. They're desperate. Nick Silverio founded a safe haven for newborns. He talks to callers on a hotline, and he provides support to help with their crises. These are unexpected pregnancies with no support, no resources. And basically, instead of placing a baby with an adoption agency and them knowing who they are, they want that baby to have a life, but they cannot be part of that child's life. Since 2000, roughly 380 babies have been surrendered at a safe haven in Florida, according to a legislative analysis. 63 have been unsafely abandoned, of which about half died. The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, has said states should also improve sex ed in schools, increase funding for family planning, and expand adoption services. Michelle Oberman is a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. She says states keep focusing on the surrender process, but not on the mother's challenges. If you were to identify infant abandonment as a problem, you would right away start to see the basic questions that we don't yet have answers to. Like who abandons their baby? What are their life circumstances? What might lead them to choose to abandon their child in a baby box? She says surrenders happen from victims of human trafficking, for instance. Nobody wants to think too hard about the life circumstances of somebody who would put their baby in that box. But honestly, if we want to do something about infant abandonment in this country, we really have to engage with the lives of the folks that we know to be contemplating placing their kids in a, some sort of a safe haven. Florida lawmakers are now considering expanding the surrender time to 30 days and letting a parent call 911 to coordinate a drop-off location with an EMS provider to give up their baby. I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami. 
Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Adrian Andrews, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, Margie Manzel, and Tristan Wood. Thanks also to Jessica Mazaros and Veronica Saragovia. Technical support for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Join us again next week online and on air for more reports from the state capitol. Funding for Capital Report is provided by the following. A grant from the law firm of Searcy, Denny, Scarola, Barnhart, and Shipley. Supporting public radio and taking time to care. On the web at searcylaw.com. The Florida AFL-CIO, representing over 1 million union members, retirees, and their families, committed to building a better future for all Floridians by promoting healthy communities, economic justice, and dignity in the workplace. Online at flaflcio.org. And from Florida State University, a preeminent institution. FSU specialty license plates support scholarships for deserving students who enrich and contribute to our state and nation. More on FSU specialty plates is at fsu.edu slash mytag. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.